It's very difficult to escape, obviously, the elephant in the room of the conflict in, in Ukraine. I know we'll get into that in our Q&A, but as the token American on this European panel, and as someone who is, geographically speaking, probably the furthest from the crisis than basically anyone in this room, I thought that I would leave that to other prepared remarks. So I, I'm going to focus here today on transatlantic lessons in preserving national identity, focusing on migration, and basically what European NACONs and American NACONs might be able to learn from one another. So it has been too frequently asserted, usually just casually or blindly, that America is just an idea. Uh, alternatively, we sometimes hear this formulated, that American nationalism or American patriotism merely amounts to fealty to America's civic religion, the egalitarian and rationalist claims of the 1776 Declaration of Independence, with its emphasis, quote, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As someone who came of age through an American public school education, I certainly used to think that. I used to accept that narrative hook, line, and sinker, as they might say. But as important as America's animating spirit, that spirit of 1776 certainly always has been, America is, of course, much, much more than merely an abstract idea. America, like any other nation, also is, or at least formerly was, a common people with a shared culture, religious heritage, customs, norms, habits, and a way of life. Consider what John Jay wrote in the Federalist Number no. 2 and Nationality Act of 1965, which largely remains good law in the United States today, with some tweaks, of course encapsulated the victory of the idea-based America. If America is solely, solely an idea and lacks any kind of defining culture, language, customs, folkways, mannerisms, then any restrictions on migration whatsoever are necessarily arbitrary and capricious. This is kind of the telos. This is the natural order of kind of the universalist, liberal, globalist agenda, I think. Taking it back here to Europe, the modern European Union and the modern European integration project in general was similarly founded on certain core ideas. The ideas of homogenation, universalism, openness, inclusion, diversity, and so forth. The EU imperative is to stamp out any local or parochial differences in the name of sameness or oneness. In the context of migration, a core EU prerogative is to flood the continent with migrants of alien cultural or religious backgrounds. Europe's Christian heritage must be diluted with massive Islamic migration and with other colorful inflows, more broadly, that better reflect the modern left's intersectional sensibilities. Just as in the United States, here in Europe, the very notion of assimilation into a distinct national culture is now shunned is a vestigial relic of a benighted bygone era. For the liberal pro-EU, for the Eurocrat mind, which abhors Europe's putative legacy as one of oppressors and colonizers, the idea of assimilation into a distinct European national culture is actually counterproductive. It is perhaps even outright evil. The results of this mentality taking hold in both America and Europe have not been good. The liberal imperium's mass migration and cultural dilution impulses 
born out of self-abnegation and ultimately self-hatred, have yielded much in the way of balkanization and civic strife. Mass migration and cultural dilution, zealously pursued as ends unto themselves, have been carried out in reckless fashion. These mass migration and cultural dilution policy imperatives have not conduced to either human flourishing or the common good of the respective American or European polities. Western society's pursuit of ultra-liberal migration policies, much like its pursuit of neoliberal trade policies, has surely redounded to the professional managerial class's needs, to the needs of the laptop class, the Davos class, we all know who we're talking about here. But the costs, both on a micro scale, in terms of tangible harms to individuals, and of course on a macro scale, in terms of the Westphalian nation-state order, the costs have been staggering. A general Western zeitgeist of national self-flagellation has deluded many into thinking that to even prioritize assimilation, this is something that was once taken for granted as an obvious condition of a successful migration policy, is now tantamount to bigotry to speak of assimilation openly. Think back to how in 2019, a little over three years ago now, veteran NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw was on Meet the Press and he was forced to profusely apologize just for saying that, that many Hispanic Americans must, quote, work harder at assimilation. He was forced to kind of walk the plank and apologize for saying that many Hispanic Americans must, quote, work harder at assimilation. Um, look, I live in Miami, Florida, and it is simply true that many Latinos and other immigrants, of course, do need to work harder to learn English. That is an empirical reality of life in many parts of the United States. But the rejection of assimilation as an obvious goal of a rational and sane immigration policy has naturally fostered assimilation's diametrical opposite, which is balkanization. If assimilation yields the proverbial melting pot, then balkanization yields the proverbial salad bowl. And from a national conservatism perspective, the salad bowl is bad. In America, large swaths of what we would call the Sun Belt, which are the warmer and lower tax states that are gaining new citizens at a faster clip than anywhere else in the US, have high proportions of their urban populations where even second and sometimes third generation migrants, sometimes third generation migrants, do not learn to speak English. In Europe, with the large-scale Islamic migration that metastasized under former German Chancellor Angela Merkel's ham-fisted leadership, we have seen the rise of so-called no-go zones. They're oftentimes in Western Europe. They're certainly right here in Brussels as well. My good friend Rahim Kassam, former chief advisor to Nigel Farage, who played a large role in the 2016 Brexit campaign, he wrote an entire book on this. Rahim's book in 2017 was titled, quote, no-go zones, how Sharia law is coming to a neighborhood near you. It is really quite ironic, of course, as well, that in an attempt to repent for her country's past atrocities, Merkel emerged as the leading proponent of mass Islamic migration to the European continent, where, unassimilated and balkanized, the all-too-predictable result has been far too many Islamist terror attacks against, guess who, of course, Jews. A similar structural feature that America and Europe share in common, though, I think can point us towards one procedural path forward towards resolving or at least 
mitigating the excesses of this self-induced crisis. We might think of American federalism, whereby our 50 states retain their own spheres of sovereignty separate and distinct from the sphere of sovereignty of the national government. We might think of that as roughly analogous, very, very roughly analogous to the European nation-state model within the context of the EU area or the Schengen area of free migration. Both US states and European nation states can exercise some sovereignty, the point is, over their own borders. As the late Justice Antonin Scalia asked in dissent in the 2012 US Supreme Court case of Arizona versus United States, he asked, quote, are the sovereign states at the mercy of the federal executive's refusal to enforce the nation's immigration laws? We can see exactly how that might apply to the European context then. The precise posture of the various EU nation states is a bit different, of course, but the overarching idea is really fundamentally the same. European nation states can and must act within their own powers to secure their own borders and limit the insidious excesses of Brussels or Berlin imposed open-ended migration. Hungary's wall on its borders with Serbia and Croatia is a perfect example of what this can look like in practice, I would submit. Finally, that's a procedural idea for finally a substantive migration-related idea, and it is a shockingly straightforward one, it's not a particularly novel idea, would be to dramatically limit raw migration numbers and codify into law a prioritization above all else of the need for cultural assimilation, thus implicitly rejecting alternative migration models like so-called merit-based or skill-based immigration that are intellectually downstream of Davos-style neoliberalism. They are very much in vogue with uh, the Fortune 500 crew, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, folks like that. Uh, to take one example, Japan actually, a country that I have visited multiple times and have long had a soft spot for, I think would be an example of what this could look like actually in practice. Japanese immigration is really quite severely limited, at least as it pertains to those who would be on track for Japanese citizenship, to those who can demonstrate historic or very strong cultural ties to Japan. Uh, Israel's law of return, of course, is, a, is another example of what this might look like. Israel's situation, of course, is unique, but I think um, there are some ways it might hold. Neither of these are perfect paradigms, and both have uh, downsides and logistical hurdles as a possible model that any other country could adopt. There is not going to be one panacea here, of course. So it's very much not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. But the overarching point here is that when it comes time to thinking about what a migration policy should, should look like, I think the NACON imperative, the way the national conservatives must approach this question, is that we must think more carefully about both legal, which too often gets ignored, legal and illegal immigration alike, prioritizing above all the cohesion of the citizenry, the assimilation of the body politic, and the intergenerational durability of the Westphalian nation-state order as the best vehicle for realizing human flourishing and, of course, ultimately securing the common good. So thank you very much and look forward to uh, our discussion.